0: Look at uh, Psalm 5 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. And there are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one. Um, It's a sad moment this week, Um, among many sad moments this week. Pastor, scholar, and author Eugene Peterson died uh, early this week. Um, There's a lot of things that could be said about him. Um, I'll probably use his words uh, quite a bit this morning. He had a certain way with words, which, um, which I think is a reflection of his creator. Words are incredibly important to human beings who are created in God's image because words are incredibly important to God. So Eugene Peterson said, we live by words. By words, God speaks to us. By words, we pray to him. Words are at the center of the human condition, Words are essential to any relationship at all, they're especially essential to our relationship with God. And as we make our way through the Psalms, the ancient Hebrew poetry that we find in the Psalms, we discover the wealth of words, the power, the beauty, the depth of words that were given to us by God to be used in our relationship with Him. Words given to us by God to be used as prayers. Some of these words are really difficult for us. Some of them are really hard for us. There is a type of psalm that can be particularly troubling to us, uh, categorized as the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory. Psalms praying against others, against our enemies. Basically curses. Some psalms go down like smooth wine. Imprecatory psalms are like a peppery whiskey that uh, sets you to coughing. Coughing. And they get the blood pumping <clears throat> they wake you up. And when you think, for whatever reason, that being a Christian just means being sort of a go-along, get-along type of person. Who's just really so nice because God is so nice. God is a God of raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Uh, then, then it can be hard for you to have a category for spicy psalms like Psalm 5. Uh, So Peterson says, in his uh, he's got a, a couple little books on the Psalms, but one of them is called Answering God, the Psalms as Tools for Prayer. He says, people who are looking for a spiritual soporific, something to sort of lull you, calm you, put you to sleep. People who are looking for a spiritual soporific, don't pray the Psalms, or at least don't pray them for very long. The Psalms are full of unsettling enemy talk. God is the primary subject in the Psalms, but enemies are established in a solid second place. There's hardly a page of the Psalms that isn't left smoking by a pungent curse. So the Psalms are God's Word, and they're God's Word given to us to become our own words, to become our prayers. So we are meant to take up even the imprecatory Psalms like this one, but how? How can we make Psalm 5 our song? that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would um, align us internally through our minds and our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Align us more and more to yourself. Help us to use these words and make them our own. Help us to hear them rightly through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice, or I I offer my prayers to you, and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness Rejoice! Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we've seen a few times already in in the titles, the very beginning, like before the first verse, the titles that appear uh, there um, are part of the original text. We've seen... Uh, A few times, this is a psalm of David, which either means that David wrote it, or that it was sort of dedicated to him, it refers to him, Uh, it calls him to mind, his perspective, um, especially in his office as the human king, as the human leader of God's people. And the title here indicates that the psalm was written to the choir master, to the choirmaster, somebody who's going to lead lots of people in singing the song, which it was intended to be sung not just by one person. It was intended to be sung corporately. A plurality of voices singing in unity in the first person singular, many voices singing together from the king's own perspective, the the use of the language there, I and me. That's singular language that the group is supposed to sing king who sings this psalm invites others to join their voices with his in such a way that they are privileged to sing as if they were him, as if they were the king who sings this psalm. It's a distinguishing feature of Christianity, the the multitudes in the church all come to God in the one name of Jesus, the one true king who relates to God for us, the one on behalf of many. We get to enter into his relationship that he has with God. So the king who sings this psalm sings to the God who is his king. He sings to the God who is his king. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. And uh, those are sort of the inarticulate cries. So the inarticulate and the articulate words that we use to God, hear, hear me, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, or probably better uh, translated, I offer my prayer to you, and, and I watch. So it's a bold request to bend the ear of the divine king of the universe, God himself, to bend his ear, but the human king of God's people may do it because of his special relationship that he has with God. Remember in Psalm 2, The human king of God's people is declared to be God's son. That's a special relationship. And Jesus, who's the son of God, he shares that relationship with us. He teaches us that we also may dare to bend God's ear, king of the universe. We may dare to bend God's ear at any time, day or night, because of the special relationship that we have to God. We're his children because we're in Christ. We're in the one who is God's son through faith and through a spiritual union. So the child of God who sings this song requests God's attention boldly and says, I'll just wait and see what you do with this, God. He watches. says he's going to watch. See what God does. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He prays. He doesn't pray for power to destroy his enemies on his own. He prays and he leaves it to God. And he says, I'm going to watch and see what you do with this. So you think of David in his life. He's on the run from Saul. Saul is the king of Israel at the time. uh, But David has already been anointed as the future king of Israel. He's the coming king of Israel. Um, but he's on the run from Saul. Saul wants to kill him. This is in You can see this in 1 Samuel 24. David is hiding in the back of a cave. And when Saul comes in alone, and, and even though Saul is uh, vulnerable to David, David could just cut his throat and be done with the whole thing with his enemies. David didn't attack him. David didn't attack him. He didn't seek to execute his own vengeance. He left it to the Lord. <clears throat> So the singer of Psalm 5 commits himself to this. He commits himself to watching. He looks to God to act. He waits on God with hope and with patience and with longing. Some, some sort of good, anxious longing for righteousness to be done. What is it that he wants to be done? What is it that he wants God to do? What evil is it that he prays that God would address in general, it has to do with deceitful, destructive speech. That is uh, very general. So you see that several times in the passage. These people in verse 5, his enemies, are boastful. They're those who speak lies. They're deceitful. Uh, in, in verse 9, there's no truth in their mouth. Their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongue. Um, and it talks about their counsels. In verse 10, so remember what Eugene Peterson said. He said that we live by words. Words are at the center of the human condition. So the children's rhyme is wrong. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Maybe you memorized that as a kid and you sort of taunted your enemies with it the words of these enemies have the power to kill. The words of these enemies that the singer of this psalm wants to see God address. They have the power to kill. So C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book on the psalms called Reflection on the Psalms, he was struck by the frequency of the protests of the psalter. How many times do you see it in the psalms? The protests in the psalter against the sins of the tongue. is what he says. He says, I think that when I began... To read it, the psalms, these surprised me a little. I had half expected that in a simpler, more violent age, when more evil was done with the knife, the big stick, and the firebrand, less would be done by talk. But in reality, the psalmists mention hardly any kind of evil more often than this one, which the most civilized societies share. It is all over the psalter. Sins of the tongue. Deceitful, destructive language. So it's perhaps... It's it's important, but maybe it's surprisingly important to you that we should pray to God against our enemies who would exalt themselves and ruin others with their words, with their lies. More specifically, enemies who flatter, enemies who look to endear themselves to us, who who look to be our uh, our advocates who appear wise in our sight seem like they're on our side enemies who flatter and who give destructive counsel false counsel bad advice so Peter Craigie is a commentator on the Psalms. he says their, their deceitfulness is creating trouble for the weak and innocent that's the kind of enemy in mind here so basically we're talking about false teachers talking about false teachers that have always plagued God's people. The first false teacher was the serpent in the garden. And Jesus said this about him, about the devil, in John chapter 8, verse 44. He said that he was a murderer from the beginning. Not because he took up a knife and slashed people's throats. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He murders with his lies, especially about God. He's the father of all false teachers who crept in, and with his flattery, suggestive, subtle lies, and ultimately evil counsel, He won humanity away from God to follow in His way. To follow in His way. And He built His kingdom in the ruins of our race. He built Himself up by tearing us down. In the garden, all humanity fell into the devil's hands. Everybody joined His side. All humanity is on the devil's side in the garden. Against God. But God, in the garden... He said that he would put put enmity between humanity, redeemed humanity, and the devil once again. They're all in the same camp, but God would divide that camp, and he would put enmity between humanity and the devil, between the redeemed offspring of Adam and Eve and the devil's offspring. God promised that he would create a church, a group of people, by the power of his word, Word that's central to our lives. The power of His Word. And so people who believed in His Word and trusted His Word and lived by His Word would then stand against the destructive lies of the devil, our great enemy, and his offspring. And ultimately this took place when Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God, came in the flesh, He came into the world to reveal God's truth to us for our faith, and for our trust, and for our life. So the greatest threat the church faces, our greatest enemy, is the devil and his offspring. The devil and his offspring. His offspring are people who are like the serpent. They're impressing and alluring the unsuspecting. They're flattering and appealing to their self-centeredness. They're looking to lead people away from the truth of the gospel in order to build their own rival kingdoms and profit from our destruction. False teachers. They're everywhere, and they can be hard to recognize. Again, Eugene Peterson says, we're easily duped by evil. Evil almost never looks like an enemy in its presenting forms. This is especially true of false teachers, which is why they're such a threat. Such a threat. Their deceitfulness creates real trouble for the unwary. Which is why Jesus has such harsh words for them. Which is why so many New Testament letters address them as a central problem to the church. And why we should pray this imprecatory psalm against them, asking God to address this threat and then watching for his action. Jesus was talking to some of the worst false teachers ever. When he said that bit in John 8 about the devil being a murderer and a liar. He's actually talking to God's own people, to the Jews, to the Pharisees especially, when he said, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer and a liar. That's his nature. And you're following after him. He's talking to the devil's offspring. In uh, Matthew's Gospel, you find several times when this is addressed. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers, the offspring of the devil. And he warns them that judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus uses that same language. He says in uh, Matthew 7, he says, beware of false prophets who are like Trees bearing bad fruit, cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 12, Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders. Woe to you. Stribes and Pharisees, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Matthew 23 again, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell, Jesus says. Very strong language, Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones to, who, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was tied around his neck and to be drowned at the depth of the sea. So Jesus pronounced woes upon these Pharisees who were convinced that they rightly taught God's law and who had everyone else convinced that they were good teachers but really he said in Matthew 23 they're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness There's no truth in their mouth, it says in Psalm 5. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. And this is because they, like their father the devil, Jesus says, they've distorted God's truth, which resulted in tremendous lies about God. It's like a cup that's full of, of cool, clear, pure water with just... One little drop of poison in it that changes the nature of all of it. And now it'll kill you. The Pharisees taught all God's commandments, for sure. Just like you'd find them right out of the Holy Scriptures. They just taught that God wouldn't love you until you'd kept them all. Which changes the nature of all the commandments when you hear them. And that is such a distortion. just that one little bit distorts everything. It's such a distortion of God's revelation and character, that if you believed it, you're dead. You're lost. That's hopeless. You don't know the true God, if you think He doesn't love you until you've kept all His commandments. And if you teach others anything like that, then you're getting in between them and God. And God won't stand for it, and Jesus won't stand for it. And neither did the apostles, and neither will any good elders in any congregation. It's a huge role of pastors and elders in the church. You find this in the New Testament. Huge role of the elders of the church to ensure that only the true gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and that any counterfeits are summarily condemned. In 1 Timothy, Paul warns Timothy, a young pastor uh, whose charge is to set up good elders in the church. He warns him against false teachers several times. It's a huge theme in the book. He charges him to stand against the false teachers as the enemies of the church, the enemies within. And he gives instructions on ordaining good elders who are able to teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ which is the lifeblood of a church. So elders, on behalf of God's people, they're to be on guard against counterfeit gospels, which are not really the gospel. Which means they need to be immersed in the true gospel. (laughs) And they need to teach that. I heard a great illustration about this once a long time ago, uh, back when you actually had real-life people detecting counterfeit money, counterfeit bills, uh, instead of machines, or nice pens um, doing, doing that work for you You have to know the difference Between the real thing And the fake And there are, <clears throat> there are a lot of counterfeits There's almost an infinite variety Of counterfeits out there But there's only one true dollar Right? <clears throat> so rather than studying All the possible permutations Of all the counterfeits Which is impossible really And familiarizing yourself with all of them so that you can detect one and, oh, I recognize that one, that's a counterfeit. You'd study the real thing till you knew it inside and out, in every detail. Anyone who knows the real thing so well would be able to to recognize a counterfeit when it comes along, sometimes instantaneously, that's obviously a counterfeit, sometimes on closer inspection. that's something everyone in the church should be able to do with the gospel. But it's particularly enjoined upon the elders who are shepherds of the church to guard the flock of God from the wolves, the way the Bible talks about it. I heard one preacher say that when, when wolves are looking to devour the sheep, you don't look to reconcile with them. You fight them off and you cast them out. You get rid of wolves. That's the way the Bible talks about it. Uh, so when Paul talks about fighting, when he talks about fighting the good fight of faith, uh, which happens a couple times in his letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, he's talking about preserv- preserving the gospel against false teachers. That's what he's talking about when he says, fight the good fight of faith. The enemies who are within the church whose words are destructive and poison, fight them. We don't hear that our fight is with those who are outside the church, with people in the broader culture who sin and promote sin. The real fight, the good fight of the faith, is against the subtle lies of people who say, this is the word of the Lord, and then they've distorted the scriptures. We're talking about groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. We're talking about individual people, you know, television prosperity preachers like Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar. We're talking about plenty of preachers in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, it's Reformation Sunday after all, so I might as well remind you that Catholics um, had these official practices of selling indulgences, certificates, certificates. Backed by the Pope's promise to serve something like that monopoly card, that get out of jail free card, which reduces your, inter- your eternal sentencing in purgatory, gets, gets you out a little faster anyway, or the people you love, <clears throat> if you buy their indulgences. They taught that bits of paper bought with money could accomplish what apparently Jesus on the cross had failed to accomplish. And they did it to make a buck to build their kingdom in the ruins of people's faith. So the Reformation 500 years ago and continuing, it's, it's a stand against such evil distortions of the gospel. It's an attempt to flush the poison from the well of God's truth. It's an attempt to, to, to recover the true gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so in response to the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent declared that anyone who teaches that gospel, anyone who teaches that salvation is by faith alone, is accursed. That's the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. And indulgences are still an official practice in the Roman Catholic Church. Those are the kinds of enemies to the gospel that should get our blood boiling. We should ask God to do something about it. You get warnings about false teachers in other places in the New Testament, in 2 Peter and Jude, which have pretty similar sections on these things. Um, These false teachers aren't the explicitly legalistic sort. You've got to keep God's law in order for him to love you. But they distort the grace of God and say, well... Grace, you know, means that it doesn't matter really what you do. It promotes licentiousness, right? The view of God's law doesn't really matter. Um, And so 2 Peter chapter 2 says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago, and I think that we see thousands of years before this, their condemnation written about in Psalm 5, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So the New Testament writers often encourage Christians... You're to be encouraged in the church with the idea that the Day of Judgment is coming for false teachers. God's going to put an end to them. John also talks about false teachers. The the writer of the Gospel and the letters and uh, and Revelation, he he talks about false teachers in his first and second letters, those epistles. He says that these people, they denied the Trinity. They denied that uh, God was Father and Son. Uh, They denied that... uh, uh, that Jesus came in the flesh, they denied the Incarnation. I mean, these are fundamental aspects to our faith. And he called them deceivers and antichrists. Pretty strong language. 2 John chapter 9, "...everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house." Or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Paul had some pretty strong words for false teachers, too. In Galatians chapter 1, he said, As we've said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Paul was praying an imprecatory prayer like Psalm 5. Let him be accursed. Anybody who brings a different gospel. And he's praying against the Judaizers who taught Christians had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Back in our psalm, chapter 5, verse 4, You're not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out that the enemies referred to here are are enemies of the cause of God. Who lay hands on us for the sake of God. It is therefore nowhere a matter of personal conflict. We're not praying this kind of psalm against somebody who cut me off in traffic. We're not praying this kind of psalm against somebody against who I hold a grudge. Bonhoeffer continues Nowhere does the one who prays these psalms want to take revenge into his own hands. He calls for the wrath of God alone. It isn't just that I hate these evildoers, God hates them. It isn't just that I abhor the liars. God abhors them, and God destroys them. Evil is not allowed to dwell with him, to abide with him. That which is anti-God doesn't have a home with God in God's presence. God hates everything that distorts the truth about himself as he's revealed himself to us. He hates everything that distorts that. Because He is gracious and merciful and ready to forgive, and He wants you to know that. And anything that gets in the way of that, He hates. He hates distortions of Himself because He's loving, and He wants people to know who He really is, to draw near to Him in truth. The psalmist continues in verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So I'm not allowed to abide with God because I'm good. They're bad, so they don't get to abide with God. I'm good, so I do. That's not it. I'm not allowed to abide with God because I've kept all God's commandments myself. I have a home in God's presence, in God's house, with God's people, because of God's steadfast love, His mercy, and His grace. And that's the true gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's God's word to you for your faith, and for your trust, and for your life with him, which is precisely what is threatened by the poison words of false teachers. And this psalm is a prayer that nothing would get in between me and Jesus. That's what this psalm is praying for. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. My enemies would make God's way crooked. They'd make it impossible for me to be in a relationship with God and see his way and follow him in his righteousness. They'd they'd make it impossible. They'd They'd make God's way crooked. So please, Lord, make the way of your salvation straight before me which means getting those enemies out of the way so that I can know you as you truly are. And it's like in Acts 13, <clears throat> uh, the New Testament reading, Jack read, um, where Paul, he encountered the, the magus. Um, it's translated there, magician. It could be translated the wise man. It's a counselor, somebody who's really respected for his wisdom, uh, which was a pretty common position in uh in courts in the ancient world. So Paul encountered this magus, this wise man, Elemas, who had opposed Paul. He'd opposed the gospel. He'd sought to turn away the the proconsul, the the leader in that area, the political leader in that area. He'd sought to turn him away from the faith. So in Acts chapter 13, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, so you know he's doing the right thing, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elemas, and he said, You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Recognize the themes? Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord. Not my hand. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And it happened. And in his own self-interest, in order to maintain his influence, his position of power, Elemas had sought to blind others to the truth of the gospel, so God blinded him. And that's poetic justice. And that's the prayer. In Psalm 5, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Make their own schemes backfire on them. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. They're not just a threat to me. They are a threat to me, but they've rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So this is... Uh, This is the petition of the prayer that Jesus taught us, the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. Protect us. Cover us. Be our refuge. Basically, all the lies of the false teachers. Pick a false teacher. Get one in your mind. All their lies, they boil down to this. They're saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't really the way to know the true God. The gospel is the way to joyful assurance in our relationship with God. And false teachers are a threat to that and they look to undermine that for their own gain. And the psalmist fights these lies with prayer. Tim Tim Keller says, the psalmist asks God to spread his protection over him and he is sure God will do this because, as we read earlier in that psalm, he looks toward the temple. He looks toward the temple, the place where sins are atoned for. So it's when we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus as he's set forth in the true gospel. We're safe. We have the assurance of our salvation. He came from the Father because God loves us. Even though we haven't kept all of his commandments, he sent his son Jesus to die for us to forgive our sins. He laid down his life for us to forgive our sins, and his work is finished. It was accomplished. And now he shares his own relationship with God as his father. He shares it with you. You can know God as your father because of Jesus, because of his grace, as you trust in him. His father is your father. His righteousness is your righteousness. Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through Him as a gift of His grace. Entirely free grace. Available just for the the receiving, the believing. And He Himself said that whoever trusts in Him will have eternal life. He will have it. That's the true gospel. If anyone says otherwise, if anyone distorts this truth about God, if anyone stands in between you and God, between you and Jesus... Let him be accursed. The day of judgment is coming for them. Let's pray for it and watch for it. Amen. Let's pray. My King, by your grace, you've brought us from the enemy's kingdom into yours, into your very house. You've placed an enmity between us and the father of lies and his children, an enmity that didn't exist before. We have these enemies in the world because of you because you love us, because you've proclaimed yourself to us, you've declared that you love us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would keep us safe from our enemies, keep us safe from the devil's influence and from the lies of his children. We pray that you would help us to fight false words about you with your own word of truth as we proclaim it and as we pray it. We pray that you would let us rejoice and sing for joy and exult in you forever because we love your name, because you've truly made it known to us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.